can't help yourself, you clappers. That was glorious. Thank you. Catherine, Catherine, we welcome you, a new artist at the keyboard. Thank you for your wonderful leadership. <laughs> Who's that man calling my name? You know, um, as you got up this morning deciding whether or not you were going to come to church, and obviously uh, wisdom prevailed, but the thought never crossed your mind as to whether it would be unsafe for you to do so. We live in a land where we take for granted the freedoms that we have, but I have been in places where it is not safe to go to church, where to do so is to put, your, put a target on yourself. And um, I want us to remember that as we are gathered here for worship and doing something that we often take for granted, it is in fact one of the great gifts of freedom which has been bestowed upon us by those who are willing to shed their blood for the sake of this nation. So welcome to Memorial Day. I, the very fact that you are worshiping God this day is, is one of the best ways that we can give tribute to those who laid down their lives in order that we might be able to do so. The last two weeks have been uh, really quite momentous in the Toon family. Uh, two weeks ago, as you know, our daughter Rachel, who has been under the care of this session, was uh, examined and approved for ordination as a minister in our denomination. She's now in the process of interviewing with several uh, different churches around the country, so we'll keep you posted. And then last week, Cindy and I traveled to Spokane for our baby boy, Cooper's, graduation from Whitworth University, if you can believe that. Yes, indeed. Oh... We got a big raise this year when we wrote that last check. <laughs> big raise. Um, Cooper graduated with a degree in mathematics. How many of you have, uh, are mathematical people? See, your proof, uh, I mean, Cooper's proof that genetic material just jumps generations, apparently, because <laughs> we're not sure where that came from. We, Cindy and I don't even understand the name of the classes that he was taking, much less actually being... Apparently, you do math without numbers. I don't get that. So anyway, not only has he got his degree, he has got a... He's gainfully employed. He has a job. Uh, he said, Dad, I even got a 401k. I said, well, all right, all right. Woo-hoo-hoo! Uh, last week, he was, uh, he was looking for an apartment. So... Um, did you read the story about the, the 30-year-old in New York who's being sued by his, who took, taken to court by his parents to kick him out of the house? You know, I'm so glad that we don't need to sue our children to launch them into independence. It is a glorious day in all kinds of ways for us. So many thanks to Pastor Megan who made it possible for me to be gone. She preached a powerful sermon. I, I looked at that text and I know I heard from many of you. I, I look at that text in a way that I haven't seen it before because of her great insight and passion. You do realize what a gift you have in the bench of preachers that we have right here. You know, there's not a, not a weak one in the bunch and uh, I hope you never take that for granted either because our, uh, our young pastors are pretty impressive. Uh, just to review Pastor Megan's message, she was wrapping up Romans chapter 12, where we, uh, where we stayed for a while. It's a wonderful pa- chapter just to kind of stew in the juices of. And she was taking us to, though, through this last section where Paul is telling us what we need to do in order to get along with knuckleheads, with the enemies, uh, people that, that he calls enemies in our life, in our relationships. And uh, he had some very good advice for us. He's, he suggested that we take the low road. Now, that's actually Megan's language, but I liked it a lot, didn't you? It's the road of humility, the road that Jesus walked. He suggests take, take that low road. So overcome evil with good. He said, uh, bless those who curse you. 
bless them instead of cursing them. He said, if as so much as is, as so, as is possible for you, re- remain at peace with people. And, uh, and he said uh, to win over your enemies with kindness, even to the point of kind of pouring uh, coals of kindness upon their heads. It, it's a wonderful admonition and, and the uniquely Christian response to what we do with the knuckleheads in our lives, the people that even might call themselves enemies in our lives. On the heels of that, as we leave chapter 12 and move on to chapter 13, interestingly, on the heels of that, Paul takes us, uh, as we're done talking about enemies in chapter 12, he takes us into a conversation about politics. I don't think that that is um, coincidental. Uh, If there is any realm in the world, and especially in our nation right now, where we might be tempted to use the language of enemy, it's probably the political realm. I don't remember our nation being as polarized as it is right now, frankly, since the days of Vietnam. And that's a, that's a while back. Uh, and it's not just that we disagree politically, it's that we have come to loathe our opponents. We don't disagree with them, we demonize them. And we view them not as fellow citizens with very different opinions, but rather we view them as enemies at times. Paul has something to say about how we live in a very polarized um, political climate. He has something to say about what it means to be a Christian citizen. I want us to read this together because I would like for you to speak these words out of God's word before I speak to them. And so let's together find what Paul has to say about what it means to be a Christian citizen. We read from Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Let us begin. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will speak to us now through your word. This might be hard for many of us to receive for different reasons. So God, speak to us, and may we receive not what I have to say, but what you want to say to us this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few weeks... Some of us are going to be heading to uh, Germany and Switzerland for a Reformation tour. We're going to be able to walk the footsteps of Luther on the heels of this 500th anniversary of his nailing the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door. We will have a chance to to find out a little bit about um, John Calvin as well down in Switzerland. So it's going to be a very inspiring trip as these always are. Um, But there will be one stop that will be less inspiring and more, frankly, sobering and maybe in some ways horrifying. For when we are near Munich, we will stop at a place called Dachau. Dachau, as most of you know, 
was uh, one of the Nazi concentration camps. What you may not know is it was the very first one. It was the very first one of how many? Do you know how many internment camps the Nazis had spread over the Reich? 40,000 plus. It's a breathtaking number of camps that were set up to put all of the undesirables away. Dachau was not a, a, an extermination camp. They did have their gas ovens, but they were never used for what they were intended to be. Oh, that, that might have been so in other places. Auschwitz, for instance. Uh, those gas ovens got well used where over a million people lost their lives and were exterminated. Uh, it is a really a horrific thing. The total number of Jews who were killed in these camps we know to be around 6 million, but the total number of, of all of the Reich's enemies who died in these various internment camps is something like 15 million. When you look into the eyes of Adolf Hitler, you are looking into the eyes of pure, unadulterated evil. A government gone berserk, a people gone mad, a genuinely evil empire. So with that as a background, I want you to imagine this. In the late 30s and the early 40s, there were a group of German clergymen who came together and they called themselves the German Christians. And they came out in public support of Adolf Hitler and what he was doing. And they used as their basis for that support the text that we just read, particularly verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So does the Bible endorse fascism? Is that really how we are to understand this text? In the hundred-year period in which we are living, we've seen the likes of Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini and Khomeini and Saddam Hussein and Pol Pot and Kim Jong-un. How then do we take this text seriously? A member of my life group this week said, I don't like this chapter. I just as soon cut it out of the Bible. Now, I don't think that's the only passage some of us would like to cut out. But, but as I see you nodding your head, you, you find yourself in agreement perhaps. Well, maybe as we dig in a little dif- dig deeper, you'll, you'll think differently. First, though, let me remind you of something. Even as we're thinking back to the horror of the men who have led in this last century, could I remind you of the context in which Paul was writing? It wasn't exactly Oz there either. You remember that Paul was writing within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a totalitarian dictatorship. It was led by the whims, by the word, of a single man called the emperor. And these guys, by and large, were pretty ruthless. Guys whose names you know, Caligula and Claudius, Nero, Domitian. They were horrible people. Caligula, for instance, he was a sadist, pure and simple. He executed his son, his grandmother, his father-in-law, and his brother-in-law. He had incestuous relationships with two of his sisters, whom he later exiled. One time, Caligula ordered that his guards would throw an entire section of the crowd into the arena to be eaten by the animals because they had run out of criminals and he had become bored with the games. Then there was Nero, the the emperor who was on the throne at the time that this letter was being written, mind you. Paul is writing these words when Nero is sitting on the throne. Nero executed his own mother and his first wife, 
He later stomped to death his pregnant second wife. He made Christians the scapegoat for the fire that destroyed much of Rome, a fire that he probably himself set. And for fun, Nero tied Christians to poles alive, dipped them in pitch, and then set them on fire to light his garden. So when we complain about our political leaders... When we complain about the context in which we live, we would do well to remember how awful were the politics at the time of Paul and how awful were the men who were in leadership at the time of Paul. He, he is not naive. He's not, when he writes these words, it's not like he doesn't know horrible things are and can go on because he was under the rule of these men who were enemies of God, enemies of Jews and Christians, often enemies of all that was good. And yet it is in that context that Paul writes these words about how we ought to live as citizens, all right? So I have, as you might imagine, wrestled with this text in this last week as you are wrestling with it now. And I have come up with four things that I think God is trying to teach me about my own Christian citizenship, and I'd like to share them with you for your edification. Point number one, all authority is delegated by God. You cannot read this passage and not understand that to be precisely what Paul is saying. He said, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And this isn't a one-off. All of Scripture speaks of the fact that all authority serves by permission of God. In Proverbs 8, 15, we read, but God, we find God saying these words, by me, kings reign and rulers decree. Perhaps the most powerful illustration of this took place when Jesus was standing before Pilate. Remember, at one point, Pilate said, Do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you and the authority to release you? And Jesus responded, You have no authority over me except that which has been given you from above. So, the man who would be responsible for crucifying the Messiah the greatest miscarriage of justice in all of human history. Even he, we are told by Jesus' own mouth, even he was delegated his authority by God. All authority serves only at God's permission. And really, when you think about it, how can it be other than that? As hideous as we might find some of these leaders to be, how can it be other than that? If we think that a bad guy kind of slipped into his power without God noticing or that that God was impotent to do anything about it, what does that say about our view of God, right? We claim, especially we Presbyterians, that God is sovereign, that he is Lord over all. If that is true, then we must, along with Paul, assert that no one can lead, no one can be in authority without permission from God. That doesn't mean that they're going to behave themselves, but that comes in a moment. So that's point number one. Here's point number two. We are, subject, we are to subject ourselves to that authority. We're to subject ourselves. That's the word that is used. That's an, actually an important word. It appears more than 30 times in the New Testament. When you read that word subject, sometimes it's translated submit, you cannot read that as slavish obedience because that's not the way it is understood in the Greek. It always, it's a vol, subjection in this, in this language is a, an act of, a voluntary act of humility that carries with it a sense of reciprocal service. It's reciprocity. We submit, subject ourselves one to another. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says 
in Ephesians, when he's talking to us in, Rome, in Ephesians 5, he said, submit yourselves or subject yourselves one to another. So as Christian citizens, we are to subject ourselves to the authorities whom God has placed in power. But there is a limit that doesn't immediately present itself in this text, but I'll show it to you. There is a limit, and the limit is this. As long as that authority carries out its God-given purpose. What is the God-given purpose of, of authorities like this? Well, this text makes it very clear, and it's very simple, actually. The, God, the, 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 the purpose of God-granted authority in government is to reward good and punish evil. Anything more than that is probably an overreach, but to reward good and to punish evil, that is the godly purpose. That is why God has ordained government on this earth. Until the time when Christ returns, until his kingdom come, in the meantime, that is how God maintains order in a sinful world. A government rewards good and punishes evil. And as long as the government is fulfilling that God-ordained task to reward good and punish evil, we are to live in subjection under its authority. But here's the third point. When authorities cease to fulfill their God-ordained purpose, we must resist. We Christians must resist. We must resist. Because then it becomes idolatry. If it's a choice between obeying God or someone else, that is idolatrous, and we Christians must resist. In verse 5, Paul says something very important. He said, therefore, one must be in subjection. That's the second time he said that. We must be in subjection to those governmental authorities that have been placed over us for two reasons. One is to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Let's take a look at those. First of all, God uses government to maintain order by punishing evildoers. We want that. We want bad guys to be punished because it restrains them. One of the reasons that I live as an obedient citizen is I don't want to be punished. I know that I'm supposed to come to a complete stop at red lights before I make a turn. But I become particularly careful to observe that law when I'm driving in Fife. One day, one of their little cameras caught me rolling my way around the corner on a red light. I ought to be conscientious about that rule because it is the law and I am a good citizen. I have become conscientious about that rule since I incurred the wrath of Fife, who apparently had been placed in that position by God himself. But there's another word in there that needs to be noticed. The last word in that verse is conscience. Did you see that? Think about what that means. We also live as good citizens because our conscience tells us it is the right thing to do. But what about the times when our conscience tells us that it is the wrong thing to do? What if our conscience compels us that a particular law is, in fact, against what God says is right and good? In that case, is it not so? In that case, as Christians, for us to obey the authorities would be idolatry. And there are perfect, plenty of examples in Scripture about this as well. Remember when Pharaoh ordered the midwives to kill all the newborn baby boys among the Hebrews. Remember that? They disobeyed because it was against God's law. And when Daniel was told to bow down and worship only Darius, to pray only to King Darius, and it was on pain of being thrown into the lion's den, Daniel disobeyed because it was against God's law. And when James and John were standing before the religious leaders and they were told, do not preach about Jesus anymore, their response was, we must obey God rather than men. 
Authorities are set in place by God to reward good and punish evil. And when, we, when they begin to punish good and reward evil, then Christians must resist. And we saw that also in Nazi Germany because there was another group of pastors, thank God, a group of pastors who were faithful to the gospel and who out of conscience resisted Hitler. You know the name of one. Remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was one. He was executed shortly before the war's end because he and other pastors were part of a plot to assassinate this monstrous evil. So all government authority is permitted by God for the common good, Paul tells us. We humbly subject ourselves to that authority, even down to the point of paying taxes, if you would read farther into the passage, unless and until our conscience tells us that that authority has exchanged good for evil. As I was thinking about it, though, our present situation, here's our problem, I think, in our nation. Everything has become evil, depending upon our perspective. We... And if everything is evil, then nothing is evil. Let me explain what I mean. We have reached the point in our political discourse where we cannot differentiate between that which is wrong or that with which we disagree and that which is wicked. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are unwilling to speak in ways that honor the highest office in our land because we impute wicked intent to the person that holds that office. I saw it happen with President Obama. I have seen it happen with President Trump. And depending on where you are politically, we don't just think that they're wrong, we think they're wicked. There was a time when that office received honor, even if you disagreed with the man. That time is fast fading. Friday I saw a headline in which one of our Seattle Seahawks called the president an idiot. We have come to assume the very worst. And we allow our personal indignation to be stoked by the news channel of choice. And we Christians who ought to know more about grace than the rest of the world are virtually indistinguishable in the ways that we speak about such things, particularly with this wretched social media, Facebook and the like. It has turned Christian brothers and sisters into monkeys in the zoo who throw their poop at each other. I was going to have a slide for that, but I opted not to. So here comes the fourth point. The fourth point that Paul pulls out is, in all of this, the supreme law of the land must be love. The supreme law must be love. In chapter 12, he told us that let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection, he said. And he repeats himself in this chapter. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he repeats that admonition two more times in this chapter. When we choose to vilify, when we assume the worst about others, when we assign the most wicked of motives to those with whom we disagree, how can that possibly be faithful to our call to the supreme law of Christian love? This last week, the NFL made a rule that it will fine a team if one of its players kneels during the national anthem. And when I read that article, there were two thoughts that came immediately to mind. First of all, I thought it was cynical, because you know that it has more to do with money than it does with principle. Uh, These guys lost 10% of their attendance last year, and they want to reverse that. So I, I thought it was rather craven. 
Here's the second thing, honestly, that I will admit I was glad when I saw it. I think that this act has dishonored the flag and particularly those who have served and died to protect the very freedoms that allow these athletes to make millions of dollars playing a game. So that was my initial response. But as I struggled with this text this week and the issues behind it in our own context, I realized that I have never tried to love the men who have protested in this way. I have never tried to understand what might cause them to do such a thing. You see, in my experience, I have only respect and admiration for police officers. In my experience, I have never been pulled over that I didn't deserve to be pulled over. So I do not understand what some African-American men have experienced in our nation. And I don't know that I have ever really tried to understand. And as I reflected on it this week, I think that is a failure of love on my part. For surely one expression of love, which is the only thing that's ever going to heal the rift in this land, one expression of love must be that we truly seek to listen, that we truly seek to understand, that we truly seek to assume the best of those with whom we disagree, even most strenuously. And if it cannot start with us, if, if it cannot start with we who are the recipients of the most gracious of gifts, the, the gift of God's own son. If it cannot start with us, God help us, where will it start? If we, the church, will not be that first modifying, moderating voice of reason and sweetness and kindness in the midst of very bitter public discourse, where will it begin? So I, I want to share some things that I have learned about citizenship, Christian citizenship, as I have wrestled with this passage, and perhaps it will be of good to you. First of all, I want to be a good citizen as a reflection of my faith in Jesus Christ, who is my highest authority. I love our nation. I love our flag. I love Jesus and his cross way more. If you don't, you're idolatrous. I want to be true to my convictions while at the same time I want to seek to understand those with whom I disagree. And I want to learn to treat them not as my enemies, but as fellow citizens. I want to have the maturity to discern between what I might think is wrong, even wrong-headed, and what is actually wicked. They are not all the same. And I want to have the courage to stand against that which is wicked. I want love to be the supreme law of my life in all things, and especially in political matters, and I'm not sure that I can say that that has been so hitherto. And finally, on this weekend in particular, I want to remember that there is no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So I want to be eternally grateful for those who made the ultimate sacrifice that we might live not under the boots of tyranny, but in a place of incredible freedom and blessing. But I want us as Christian citizens to contribute to that blessing by the way that we speak, by the way that we post, by the way that we treat each other. Let us pray.
Lord, if, uh, if others in this sanctuary are anything like I was this week, they might be squirming a little bit as they come to grips with their own prejudices and intolerances and unkindness. Forgive us for that, Lord, for if we belong to you, you deserve better from us. We may not be able to change the, the tone of national discourse, but we can change it in our family rooms. We can change it in the coffee shops. We can change it one conversation at a time in this community. So I pray that you would help us to do that. Not because we're wishy-washy on what we hold to be right and smart and wise, but for the sake of love, we're at least going to acknowledge that others might not view things we, the way we do. Above all, Lord, may we be saved from the sin of idolatry that worships anything, including country and flag, more than we worship you, for you alone are worthy of our worship. And we bow before you, your children, your servants, with, dumb, with complete and humble gratitude for all you have done for us. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. Following this service, uh, I would love to meet you if you're visiting with us for the first time. I'll be right in the back there. I have a gift for you. We like to mug our first-time visitors, so if you would like to get mugged by a pastor, first-time event for you, please come back afterwards. Um, We're going to uh, receive the blessing of the Lord and the infilling again of His Holy Spirit because only with the Spirit can we do what Paul has called us to do. So would you raise your hands up for a refill? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All of God's people said, would you please stand for the retiring of the